Let me ask you to turn your attention now to our passage for this morning. And if uh, I've been out of the pulpit for a few weeks, and what we have been studying this summer, if, if you're visiting, haven't been here before, we've been studying an Old Testament book, the book of Joshua. And, um, I'm, but I'm, I'm taking a break from that this morning. This is just sort of a standalone sermon. I haven't been in the book of Luke uh, leading up to this, but we'll be in it this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6. This is, uh, this is a parallel in the Gospel of Luke to the Sermon on the Mount. The, the classic passage for the Sermon on the Mount is, is uh, Matthew 5 through 7. This seems to be a different setting where Jesus said a lot of the same things, but said, said them differently, nuanced it. So that's where we'll be in Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, everything I'm going to refer to pretty much is, is there in the bulletin. Um, prophets in the Old Testament, well, there's some in the New Testament, but mostly Old Testament. Prophets, we tend to think of them as being people that told the future. Sometimes God empowered them to do that. But mostly what a prophet did was speak for God. As somebody, I've heard somebody say, they didn't so much um, do as much foretelling as they did forthtelling. And typically, a prophet had one of two types of messages or oracles. The first would be a, a message of blessing, that God is, is for you and He is happy with you and He is behind you. That's the one you wanted to get. Oftentimes, a prophet came with the other kind of oracle, and it's an oracle of woe. And we really don't have an English equivalent of, of that term of woe. It's, when I say woe, that sounds pretty mild and pretty manageable, kind of a woe is me. But woe was supposed to do something in your insides like... Uh, it, would, it, would be, it would be like what a parent would feel if they know that their newly uh, driver's licensed high schooler is out with friends and the parent falls asleep before the child is back home and the phone rings and the parent answers it and it's the highway patrol and what happens to their insides. That's what woe was supposed to do to people's insides. Well... You know, it's interesting to think about, in our day, what, if a prophet walked into Greenville, in God's name, what would he pronounce a woe on? And a lot of the way you answer that is going to stem out of just what's important to you and preferences or even kind of viewpoints where you are in the ideological spectrum. I mean, for some people, it's going to be sort of traditional stuff. It's going to be decay of culture and breakdown of the family and sexual immorality and look at what's on TV and that kind of thing. For some people, it's going to be, look at the incredible uh, discrepancies and and inequities in our culture between the haves and the have-nots. Look at social injustices. But whatever the case, we could come up with things that we would think, if a prophet walked into Greenville and pronounced woe on behalf of God, what the woe would be aimed at. All right, now, this passage is where Jesus, and we sing about him being our prophet, priest, and king. He very much has got his prophet hat on. And he's going to pronounce a blessing and a woe. This is actually in a string of blessings and woes. I just drew out two that are counterparts to each other. And here's the weird thing. He's going to pronounce a blessing on people who are experiencing something that we dread. And he's going to pronounce a woe. Now again, that is a strong term prophetically. He's going to pronounce a woe on people who are, who are experiencing something that we crave. This is from Luke chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 20. 
And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The counterpart is in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to pause and pray and cry out to you. And whether, whether this feels, whether this is what we feel right now or not, we want to, to say in our hearts right now that your word is profitable for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And Father, as we say often, we don't just want to have a neat talk or a neat little reflection. We, we want to eat your word. And so would you bring it into our very lives and hearts, all of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's, there's a great experience sometimes. It's, and it's sadly, at least for me, I feel like it's rare when you're, you're, when you're reading good writing... Christian or non, or, or unknown. And this might be a novel, it might be a book about the Christian life, it might be what, but when you're reading something and someone names something that you thought was your secret, they say it. You know, it's, it's, the, it's, not, it's not the feeling of reading going, huh, that's a good point, let me write a little annotation on the side. It's the feeling that you've been exposed, that you've been found out, that someone actually verbalized what you thought was your little secret. Okay, I want to read. I forgot to bring my hard copy with me. So through the miracles of the internet, I'm going to read this off my phone. Um, now this is from somebody that I, I quote a pretty good bit, C.S. Lewis, and he's got lots of great stuff. I don't agree with everything he ever said about everything, but he said a lot well. But the first time I read this passage, this is from the Screw Tape Letters. It was the feeling that my little secret had been outed. Um, you know the you know the setup of the screw tape letters. You've got the older demon, screw tape. He's writing his nephew, Wormwood, about how to tempt uh, the patient, the man he's trying to ruin spiritually. Now, at this point, this is from letter number 10, the man is, is not really a Christian yet. He kind of professes to be one, but he has started going to church. Now, listen to what screw tape, how he says to work that. He says, there's a subtler and more entertaining method He can be made to take a positive pleasure in the perception that the two sides of his life are inconsistent. This is done by exploiting his vanity. He can be taught to enjoy kneeling beside the grocer on Sunday. And a picture, Church of England for Lewis, so kneeling. 
Uh, he can be taught to enjoy kneeling beside the grocer on Sunday just because he remembers that the grocer could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world which he inhabited on Saturday evening. And contrarywise, to enjoy the body and blasphemy over the coffee with these admirable friends, all the more because he is aware of a deeper spiritual world within him which they cannot understand. You see the idea. The worldly friends touch him on one side and the grocer on the other, and he is the complete, balanced, complex man who sees round them all. Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, he will feel, instead of shame, a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. And the first time I read that, I thought, holy cow. I thought that was my little secret. Now, I I, I make no assumption that everyone here is a Christian. Uh, I know some of you are not. I don't know who you are. I just know that that, that you're here. Um, But for those of you who are professing Christians, I think you know something of the feeling of being in a setting that is decidedly not Christian, where really you are not identified as being a Christian, you're you're at some level fitting in and sort of congratulating oneself that, you know, I can navigate these waters in a way that the people that I'll be at church with tomorrow or later this week, that, that, that they would never understand. Then to be at church and to look around at the other people in the sanctuary and to think, you know, uh, they could never navigate what I was able to navigate the other day. And the people that I was with then, they, can't, they don't understand theology like I do. And to be p- sort of pleased with oneself that I'm the well-rounded person and haven't been exposed. The Apostle Paul said this, everyone, blanket statement, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All, now, how did he know that? Well, number one, from experience. But he also knew it from Jesus. You know, the night that Jesus was arrested, before he was arrested, and he just kind of poured out his heart in teaching to his apostles, he said this, this is in John chapter 15, if they hated me, they will hate you. And you think about the most loving man who ever lived, a man who who must have virtually eradicated disease from sections of Judea, who always told the truth, who, as one person said, who wasn't the airtight argument that God sent, he was the airtight person that God sent to us, that he got thrown under the bus at the end. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Did you note that uh, the reason I included chapter 7, verse 1, is that Jesus didn't just say those things to the apostles, but he said it to all his disciples, and he did it in the presence of anybody that was there listening to say, this is how it is. Blessed are you, not that everyone hates you, and not that uh, people just hate you for any particular reason. It's not a blessing just to be generically hated, but if you are hated on account of me, on account of the Son of Man, that's what Jesus liked to call Himself, if you're hated and reviled and scorned and misinterpreted on account of me, you're blessed. And if that never happens to you, woe to you. So here's what I want to look at. Let's look at the woe first 
And then let's end on the blessing, okay? First, the woe. Let me read it again, verse uh, 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now note, he's not just talking about the absence of negative attention. And he's not talking about flying under the radar and just kind of not being hardly noticed much by anybody. He's talking about the presence of positive attention when universally you're approved of and spoken well of. Now, that's interesting because you think about, all right, just taking the Scriptures as a whole, if you seek to obey the will of God, if you seek to obey God's commandments, if you follow Christ who is so insistent that the two greatest commandments are what? Love God. And then he said the second is like it. The second is huge. Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? He goes out of his way to say, everybody's your neighbor. Love everybody. And that's evidenced in the fact, what's the next verse? If somebody does hate you or lie about you or speak disparagingly of you, you're not supposed to return that with scorn or trash talk. He says, no, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. You just love people, period. And And Proverbs talks about it's great to have a good name, to have a good reputation. Uh, Romans 12 says that you should live at peace with all men as much as you have the power to do so. Uh, We're not supposed to ordain church officers unless they have a good reputation with the larger community. All right, so let's look at that. So the Bible's saying love everybody, no matter how they respond to you. Give, uh, Give to others. Be a blessing to others. Have a good name. Strive for a good reputation. Be at peace with people as much as is possible. All right. We would then expect God to say, yeah. And so then when people respond well to you, that's a blessing. And here he's saying, if everybody responds well to you, woe to you. Now, why would that be? And it has to be, as you look at at the the blessing and the woe as counterparts, as kind of like the, the positive and the negative, It's this thing of on account of the Son of Man. Now, picture this. let Let me give you a scenario. This is not the definitive one. It's a scenario. Picture that you have someone. Okay, if you are a professing Christian, let's say that you have a friend with whom you've cultivated a relationship and this person would say that he or she is not a Christian. And, it, and it, in fact, it's possible that you might be the only professing Christian he or she has. You might be the only uh, good friend or acquaintance that he or she has that goes to a church. And you're very careful with what you talk about with this friend. And you're really trying to say, I don't want to treat this person like a project. Like, he or she is really my friend. I enjoy this person and they enjoy me. And I'm not trying to make them into a project. So you've tried to, you try to be careful. You try to put a... Try not to get into hot-button stuff. You know, you're not like getting in the car to listen to inflammatory talk radio every chance you get. Like you're just trying to like nuance things and agree about what you can agree about and, and disagree what you can mutually disagree about. You're being so careful. Now, probably in that relationship, it, the less this person knows about Christianity, sometimes they're going to kind of turn to you when they see wacky things done in the name of Jesus and kind of go... That's not you, is it? And we ought to have the freedom to say, no, no, 
That is not me. I mean, like, this is a horrible example to use, but it's been in the news so much. You know about it anyway. You know, like, when you see something like um, the, the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, like with the God Hates Fags poster at a funeral, and, okay, you've got somebody that really doesn't have great categories for the church, and they turn to you and say, that, you're not into that, are you? you? You should have utter freedom to say, no. But sometimes you'll get into a moment like this where the person might then say, you know, I I get so sick of evangelical Christians making it out like Jesus is just the only way to God. That if there's a God, the only way you can get to this God is through Jesus. Like that's the one path to Him. You don't believe that, do you? Now, I don't know if you've ever been put over a barrel like that, but I have. And at that moment, we're at a fork in the road. Because we're not talking about something about which, you know, there's all kinds of different ways Christians can approach this. It's not like talking... Well, I won't even get into that and sidetrack us. But at that moment, what, here, here's the deal. If all you had was the Gospel of John, and that's all you had, that, that moment would have you in a pickle. Because if all you had was the Gospel of John, you would still have Jesus saying... He says this two verses after John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world, gave His only begotten Son. Two verses later, He says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life and is condemned already. Later in the book, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I'll tell you, when you're in a moment like I just described in that scenario, what's so tempting would be to say something like, well, I would just say that for me, Jesus is my road to God. Listen, I get it. I get it. I get it why we want to say that at that moment. But Jesus did not say, I'm the way and the truth to the life, and for you, I'm the way to the Father. He said, no man comes to the Father but through me. The reason when he said, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? The reason the answer was no is because there is no other way. And at that moment, the question for us is, is this person's good opinion of me? Is it a means or is it an end? If it's a means, that means, that means, the means, that my hope was that this person could see a Christian that maybe challenges, maybe undermines preconceptions or misconceptions that they had about Christianity or about Jesus, and I want, I want to be that to him or her in any way I can. My hope is that I could be a way or a person or a means that helps him or her toward Jesus. That's a great thing to want. We want that for our church. But if at that moment that I've decided, no, it is an end that he or she continue their good opinion of me, there is a woe upon us. Um, this pa- you know, this passage has just torqued me inside and out. I I had such a relationship with someone. This person no longer lives in Greenville, but I I had a person 
that not just for months but for years that I had befriended and been intentional with and it wasn't like, you're my little project and I'm going to leave little tracks under your windshield about Jesus. We had eaten together and gone out together and I'd had this person into our home and Dana had spent time with this person and not a project. And I had prayed for this person and I tried to be so careful not to make sweeping statements about things, to nuance things, to agree where we could agree and disagree about what we could disagree. If he said, woo, that's wacky. Yeah, boy, that is wacky, isn't it? Any way that we could, could connect. And then a moment came where I bumped into this person at the grocery store and he said, you know what, I'm leaving Greenville. I'm leaving Greenville because this place... And he said, because this place is, has too many preachers in it. I thought... I'm a preacher. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, and they're all the same. Now, this, this is after years of the relationship that I just described. And I said, am I one of those? And he said, I'm sorry, but yes, you are. And it made me so angry. I got angry at him in the produce section of the grocery store. I had to write a letter of apology and take it over to his house that afternoon because I handled that moment so badly because it slayed me. It slayed me because I tried to be so careful. And here's the thing. I wanted his good opinion of me to be... I would have said it was a means to an end, but I really... I just wanted to have it and retain it and that's where we'd land. And then he'd become a Christian and boom. Boom. And in a, I mean, in a second, I might as well have been a televangelist with like a $3,000 suit in a gaudy TV set. In a moment. If you follow Christ, not only can this happen, it will happen. It will happen. And the thing is, the more careful you've been and the more you've prayed for someone, the, the more intentional you've tried to be, it will just... I mean, even as I'm sitting here, you might be going, but I cannot abide being misconstrued that way. I cannot abide being lumped into a lump that includes something like God hates fags. That's not who I am. I can't... If that's who they think Christians are and they throw me in that category, I can't abide being put into that category. I get it. But you know what? Let me quote Paul. Paul said, For am I still trying to win the approval of God or of man? Or am I still trying to please man? Then he says this, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10 and boy, is that what his life looked like. Hey, I have Jesus. Hey, I have eternal life. Hey, all my friends, friends just threw me under the bus. Hey, churches that I help plant don't understand me. And I think it is, it is sanity restoring for us to occasionally come together and say, if we, can't, if we are unwilling to be misinterpreted, if we are unwilling to be misconstrued, then do not hitch your wagon to Jesus. the most loving, obedient man who ever lived, who was loving the people that no one was loving, 
and he still was misinterpreted, and he was still misconstrued, and he was still thrown under the bus when he was the only man that was keeping the law and the prophets perfectly. Woe to us if we can't be misunderstood and we'll do whatever it takes to avoid the misinterpretation. Now, may we move on to blessing now? Let's do. Verse, uh, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, once again... This is not the absence of positive attention. It's the, you know, potent, robust presence of negative attention. Hate, revile, spurn. Jesus, this here's counterintuitive Jesus. When you encounter that, again, not because of your politics not because of your hobby horse and not because of your personality. You know, like it's not a blessing to be a jerk to people and then when they get offended you go, well, okay, well I'm blessed now. No, it's when you get that on account of the Son of Man, that your identification with me, you having just kind of me on you and my name on you, that that got you into trouble. When you bump into that kind of trouble and it really it pushes into you, you're blessed. Man, it doesn't feel like a blessing. It reminds me of what Winston Churchill's wife said after Winston Churchill walks the UK, walks the UK through the Second World War, and they, you know, and they win World War II, or the Allies win World War II, and then he's voted out of office. And he said to his wife, Clement, uh, his wife Clementine said to him, I think it's a blessing in disguise. And Churchill said, well, it's very cleverly disguised. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it feels that way of like, hey, blessing. It's a blessing in disguise. Wow, it's such a disguise I can't sleep because I'm churning inside. So what does he say when you receive that kind of blessing? Well, two things. Number one, the presence of active hostility should evoke active love. Are you getting not passive hostility, but active hostility? It should be met with active love. And we are not, we are not going to see the kingdom expand by out trash talking people. There's a hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal, and there's a little line in there that says this, it's not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drum." not having a seat at the table or power plays, not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And if you want to know why did Christianity go from this little, what was thought to be like a little Jewish sect slash cult to going all over the world, it wasn't because we got into the positions of power and we made our power play by having a seat at the table. It was through deeds of love and mercy as the gospel was proclaimed. Now, that's hard. That right there is hard. But the second one may be harder. Okay, he says, that's how you respond to them. But he also said this, verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy 
For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now you might be saying, well, I, man, I, I know, I may not be great at it, I, I would want to respond in love. The, the jumping for joy, I don't know about that. How do you jump for joy when you meet with that? And I'll I tell you the best answer I know to that, a quote from another hymn. This is a hymn. It was written in 1765. So, I mean, it's very possible the guy that wrote this, Joseph Grigg, had a powdered wig. And the name of the hymn is Jesus and Shall It Ever Be. Does that not sound like the 1700s? Jesus and Shall It Ever Be. And here's how it starts. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee, ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days. And you realize what he's writing a hymn about is his own capacity to be ashamed of Jesus. In fact, I thought the name of the hymn was Ashamed of Jesus because he keeps saying that phrase. Here's, Here's the next one. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend, no, when I blush, be this my shame that I no more revere his name. And then he says this, yeah I, may, yeah, I could be ashamed of Jesus when there's no sins to forgive, when there's no stains to wash. Yeah, then, then I could be ashamed of Jesus. And of course, rhetorically, he's saying, I can't ever be ashamed of Jesus. So that, those are great words, but the last verse, here's the last verse. Till then, nor is my boasting vain, till then I boast a Savior slain. And... And oh, may this my glory be that Christ is not ashamed of me. End of the hymn. And I'll tell you what, different things hit different people in different ways. But the thought of a man 250 years ago in his powdered wig writing with his quill and and sitting back from the table and saying, my hope is not that I'll be more proud of Jesus. My hope is that he is not ashamed of me and sets his quill down. That is why we sing hymns. How do you leap for joy when you have tried to be careful and you get pushed back? It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. It's a crummy part of a fallen world. But at the end of the day, the pushback is for mortals. And the divine face that we crave to look at us and to say... I love you, and I'm proud of you. In Christ, we have that. We already have that. And Jesus is not ashamed of us. When he's on that cross, one of the things that he's paying the price for is that we're capable of being ashamed of the person who went on the cross. And that's worth jumping over. One last story, um, and, and I'm done. One thing I really appreciate about my mom, among many things, is that mom does not want a lot of fancy, nice things. But uh, when I was very little, she had expressed that she had always wanted just a small bottle, like an ounce, of Joy perfume. I don't even know if they still make Joy perfume, but like very high-end. So my dad got my mom a one-ounce bottle of Joy perfume. And, uh, and I fact-checked everything I'm about to tell you this morning with my mom. Um, 
at one point when I was about two years old, she got very sick. And uh, she was sick in a way that made her, it was painful and very difficult to move. So uh, my, my dad was at work. I was home with mom and she had me in the room with her where I could be, where I was, you know, close by. Uh, but I was, you know, big enough to get up and move around. And uh, so at one point I walked over to her counter and there's this bottle. And I took it and drank every drop of it. And so mom rallies and um, drives me to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, it's not enough where the alcohol would do anything to him, and, you know, it's made of natural oil, so it's not really going to hurt him, but for about the next three days, you're going to have the most expensive-smelling baby in Jackson, Mississippi. (laughs) So mom said just for days, I just, you know, was exuding (laughs) joy perfume, and... And then it went away. But with that horrible image in mind, uh, think about what the New Testament says, that we carry around with us the aroma of Christ. What was our call to worship? God's poured His love into our hearts by His Spirit. Of course we do. And the New Testament goes on to say, to some people it is the smell of death and there is nothing we can do about it. We should be nuanced. We should find points of contact. We should love whether we love back or not. And sometimes that's going to be winning and sometimes it's not. But when it is, it's not, the end is not that we stay liked. The end is that people know where that aroma comes from. From Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we would ask that for us individually, and we would ask for us as a church, that the great aroma we give off not be so much our politics, our preferences, our tastes, where we are unnecessarily attracting a few and driving away the many. Our hope, our prayer is that we have the aroma more and more of Christ about us. When it is the scent of death, the smell of death to our neighbor, we pray that we would Extend to them what you have extended to us, grace and mercy and patience and long-suffering. But, Father, use us as a road to lead others to Christ. Father, if there's anyone here who is still ashamed of Jesus or hasn't known him long enough to be ashamed but doesn't know what to do with him, Would you open her eyes? Would you open his eyes to see Christ as he is? To reach out and find him by faith. And to see how he is really the answer to our dreams. Our dreams come true. We pray this in his name. Amen.